Decision podcasts by the New York Prosecutors Training Institute are made possible by VoicePods. Convert your text to voice at voicepods.com. Read this decision at NIPT Law. www.nypti.org slash law. The People C. Respondent. V. David Marina, Appellant. Number 103. The People C. Respondent. V. Mauricio Altamirano, Appellant. Number 102. Michael Artus, for Appellant. Thomas M. Ross, for Respondent. Number 103. Anders Nelson, for Appellant. Thomas M. Ross, for Respondent. Stein, J. It is not disputed that the trial courts in both of these cases erred by reversing, after summations, their prior rulings on defendants' requests to charge the jury. Both courts erred by failing to charge the jury in accordance with their pre-summation rulings on defendants' charging requests. The question before us on these appeals is whether these errors mandate reversal. We hold that the error was harmless in both cases and, therefore, affirm. I. After defendant David Marina and the victim were asked to leave a restaurant where they had engaged in a late-night fight referred to by defendant as the first attack, the victim returned with a machete, hit defendant with it and then chased him across the street referred to by defendant as the second attack. The manager of the restaurant, armed with a baton, ran across the street, grabbed the victim, and dragged him back to the front of the restaurant. As the victim was pulled away from defendant, he pointed the machete at defendant. The manager told defendant, who followed the victim back across the street, to go home. The manager then flagged down a passing police car, told the victim to drop the machete and, once he saw police coming, returned to his work. Another witness, a disc jockey, did not see the victim drop the machete, but he heard, a sound like when metal hits the floor, and did not see the victim holding the machete any longer as the victim walked away. In what defendant refers to as the third attack, he stepped onto the sidewalk and loudly stated something to the victim, who turned around and took off his jacket, defendant and the victim then began punching each other. The disc jockey saw the victim start to bleed from part of his right arm and fall to the sidewalk, while there was a noise, like a bottle breaking, defendant fled, and the police approached, observing the victim with blood spraying from his arm. An officer called an ambulance and attempted to stop the bleeding, but the victim lost consciousness shortly thereafter and was pronounced dead approximately 30 minutes after the officers arrived. All three interactions were captured on surveillance video, which was introduced into evidence at trial. Officers returning to the scene the next morning found the machete on the street near tiny bits and pieces of broken glass that had no blood on them. When police spoke to defendant, he admitted that, before fleeing, he took a knife out of his pocket and swung it at the victim. Defendant was thereafter charged with manslaughter in the first degree, assault in the first degree and criminal possession of a weapon in the fourth degree. At trial, the medical examiner testified that the cause of the victim's death was blood loss from a severed brachial artery in the right arm. Although the medical examiner indicated that the four-inch-long incised wound was not inconsistent with having been caused by a broken bottle, she testified that the wound was certainly more consistent with having been sustained by a sharp instrument such as a knife. Defendant testified that, during the third attack, he feared for his life when the victim shed his jacket and approached. Therefore, although defendant did not see whether the victim had a weapon at that point, he pulled out the knife and swung it at the victim. Once home, defendant saw blood on the knife and washed it off. 
At trial, defendant's theory was that the victim's fatal wound was the result either of falling on a glass bottle or, if caused by a stabbing, that defendant's use of deadly physical force was justified. At the charge conference, the people sought an expanded charge on intent, that the jury should consider whether the result of defendant's conduct was the natural, necessary and probable consequence of that conduct, and defendant requested that the people be precluded from arguing that, if the victim's injury was caused by falling on a glass bottle on the ground, his resulting death was a natural consequence of defendant's actions. As defendant noted, that theory of prosecution was not presented to the grand jury. Defendant also requested a specific instruction that, to convict him of first-degree manslaughter, the jury had to find that the victim's death was caused by a knife, specifically a box cutter. The court responded that it would charge that the jury had to find that defendant caused the victim's death with a dangerous instrument, to wit, a knife or a box cutter. On summation, defendant argued that the jury had to acquit him of the manslaughter charge if the people failed to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the instrumentality of death was the box cutter, as opposed to a bottle on the ground, and devoted a substantial portion of his summation to attempting to demonstrate that the victim died from falling on a broken bottle. The people argued in summation that defendant intended to cause the victim serious physical injury and that the victim's death was actually caused by the defendant slashing the victim with that blade and not by anything else. When charging the jury, the court failed to include the agreed-upon language that the jury could convict defendant of manslaughter only if it found that the victim's death was caused by a box cutter. Defense counsel objected on the ground that he had structured his summation in a particular way in anticipation of the promised charge. The court responded, that's what was argued, that if the jurors found, it wasn't the box cutter, they have to find him not guilty. Defense counsel made no further objections or requests. The jury convicted defendant of first-degree manslaughter and fourth-degree criminal possession of a weapon. The appellate division affirmed, holding as relevant here that, although it was error for the court to inform the parties, prior to summations, that it would instruct the jury on a specific instrumentality of death in its charge of manslaughter in the first degree, and then to subsequently remove that language from its charge following summations, the error was harmless. A judge of this court granted defendant leave to appeal. 2. Defendant Mauricio Altamirano was convicted of criminal possession of a weapon in the fourth degree for storing another person's operable, but unloaded, .22 caliber revolver in his apartment. At trial, beginning with opening statements, counsel presented a temporary and lawful possession defense. Counsel argued that defendant was guilty only of trying to do a favor for a friend, and that he did not know that his friend, who he knew only as Columbia, had a gun in a bag that he asked defendant to store in his home. Counsel asserted that, when defendant realized there was a gun in the bag, he twice asked Columbia to remove the gun from his home, to no avail, and later cooperated fully with police after they approached him to inquire about the gun. Defendant requested that the court charge the jury on temporary and lawful possession of a weapon. Defendant argued that his statement, along with the evidence that he turned the weapon over to police at the first opportunity presented to him, provided a basis for the charge. The court denied the request on the ground that the evidence did not support lawful possession, but also refused the people's request to prohibit defendant from referring to temporary possession in summation. 
Counsel, relying on defendant's statements to police, then argued in summation that defendant innocently permitted Columbia to place a bag in his home without being aware that a gun was concealed inside, demanded that the gun be removed when he learned that the weapon was in the bag, and later fully cooperated with the police when they confronted him about the weapon, conduct which was consistent with that of someone who was innocent. Counsel also argued that there was insufficient evidence regarding the time period between defendant's discovery that the bag in his home contained a gun and when he turned the weapon over to police. After summations, without first informing the parties, the court gave the temporary and lawful possession charge to the jury. Thereafter, outside the presence of the jury, the court explained that it decided to give the charge out of an abundance of caution, but it denied defendant's request to reopen his summation so that he could re-argue to the jury the charge. Defendant was convicted as noted above. Upon defendant's appeal, the appellate term affirmed, concluding that criminal court deprived defendant of the right to an effective summation, but that reversal of the judgment of conviction was not required because defendant was not entitled to a charge on the defense of temporary and innocent possession of a weapon based on the facts of the case. A judge of this court granted defendant leave to appeal. 3. In Herring v. New York, the Supreme Court of the United States explained that the constitutional right of a defendant to be heard through counsel necessarily includes the right to have defense counsel make a proper argument on the evidence and the applicable law in defendant's favor. The Herring Court ruled invalid a New York statute that empowered a trial judge to deny absolutely the opportunity for any closing summation at all. The court held that the complete denial of an opportunity to make a summation of the evidence is a violation of the Sixth Amendment because closing argument for the defense is a basic element of the adversary fact-finding process in a criminal trial. That is, the right to be heard in summation of the evidence from the point of view most favorable to a defendant is implicit in the right to the assistance of counsel that the federal constitution guarantees. Indeed, no aspect of advocacy could be more important than the opportunity finally to marshal the evidence for each side before submission of the case to judgment. However, the rule is not that closing arguments in a trial must be uncontrolled or even unrestrained Herring, 422 U.S. at 862. Rather, the Supreme Court explained in Herring that the trial judge must be and is given great latitude in controlling the duration and limiting the scope of closing summations it is fundamental that the jury must decide the issues on the evidence, and therefore fundamental that counsel, in summing up, must stay within the four corners of the evidence and avoid irrelevant comments which have no bearing on any legitimate issue in the case. Moreover, although there is no way to know whether appropriate arguments in summation might have affected the ultimate judgment in a case, the Supreme Court has since emphasized in Glebe v. Frost that none of its cases clearly requires placing improper restriction of closing argument in the narrow category of structural errors, as opposed to a trial error reviewable for harmlessness. Of course, even most constitutional mistakes call for reversal only if the government cannot demonstrate harmlessness. It is only the rare type of error, in general, one that infects the entire trial process and necessarily renders it fundamentally unfair, that requires automatic reversal. Although Glebe was decided pursuant to the deferential standard applied under the Anti-Terrorism and Effective Death Penalty Act of 1996 and, thus, leaves open the question of whether harmless error analysis applies to trial court rulings that operate to restrict counsel's strategic choices regarding summation, it nevertheless makes clear that Herring does not compel a conclusion that the restriction of summation amounts to structural error. 
Of course, regardless of whether the error is structural, summation matters as the dissent puts it. For cases number 102 and number 103, order affirmed. Opinion by Judge Stein. Chief Judge DeFiori and Judges Garcia and Feynman concur. Judge Fahey concurs in result in an opinion. Judge Rivera dissents in an opinion in which Judge Wilson concurs. Decided December 17, 2019. Decision podcasts by the New York Prosecutors Training Institute are made possible by VoicePods. Convert your text to voice at voicepods.com. Read this decision at NIPT Law. www.nypti.org slash law.